This episode was released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, shows like The Muppet Show wouldn't exist. You can learn more at sagafterstrike.org and wgacontract2023.org. If you'd like to support the striking workers, please go to entertainmentcommunity.org. It's Muppeturgy, and we're not clowning around about the Shields and Yarnell episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey, do we have a good one for you tonight? Don't ask. Of course we do. No. No, we do not. No, you don't. Well, we do. <laughs> we will. We might. They do not. Stay tuned. Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome back. I guess I'm glad you're here with us. If we have to do this, we all got to do this. <laughs> wow. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah. Way back in season one, when I called the people who didn't watch the show along with us weirdos, um, you, you, you're the lucky ones this week, guys. <laughs> good job, weirdos. <laughs> Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, I'm David Levy, and here tonight with me are Christy Bauer, Adam Grossworth, and Michal Richardson. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. Here's a correction and or addition and or simply a regret. Uh, we regret not making a pun about feet in the John Denver episode of Muppeturgy <laughs> when we discussed why can't we be friends. Uh, we mentioned that the Muppets created the illusion of a kick line, even though they had no feet, were not using their legs to kick. And uh, we mentioned what a feat it was, and we should have gotten more kicks out of that, but we're not going to be arch about it. But yeah, here, here we are to atone. There you go. That was our, our sole correction. Moving right along. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 3 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of May 8th, 1979, and it aired in New York on October 1st, 1979. Happy Yom Kippur. You don't really in say Happy Yom Kippur. In the spirit of the There's a lot to answer for this week. This was both the third episode produced and the third episode to air in New York City after Linda Lavin, which uh, was made a little bit later. So we have not discussed it yet. And I wish we were in the news. Uh, I don't want to say it's a slow news week. It was just a news week that didn't super interest me. And I talked a lot last episode. So um, the big news is that at midnight tonight, Panama will take over jurisdiction of the Panama Canal from the United States. That That is actually kind of a huge story. Um, The Pope is about to come to the U.S. for a short tour and visit Boston and New York, and some people are really excited about it. Coca-Cola has robots, you guys. Um, This is the Muppet Show. I know. um, This is my favorite story, uh, and we'll put the screenshot or link in the show notes. But they had these like R2-D2 ripoff robots with like a sort of a Coke dispenser body that would like roam supermarkets. and. I think they had a human operator who could sort of talk through a speaker or like tr- trigger sound cues. It's not entirely clear, but they would walk out of people and be like, don't you want to buy some Coke? It's amazing. I tried to find more information. All, all I could find was a bunch of people selling the toy version, like on eBay. I couldn't really find more details, but Why they're fantastic. Do I not have a Diet Coke dispensing robot in my apartment right now? Uh, I don't know, but you mean a Diet Cobot. That's- that's what they were called. Well, not Diet, because Diet Coke didn't exist yet, but they were called Cobots. Anyway, a lawsuit asserts that the New York City Metropolitan Transit Authority fails to provide for the disabled. No shit. Well, Which, good thing right? we this is, that. This is our theme of like stories from 1979 that we are still 
putting in the paper in 2023. It's very depressing. In the movies, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, Time After Time, in which H.G. Wells uses a time machine to hunt Jack the Ripper in 1979. Sure, why not? Uh, Alien, Amityville Horror, and Varner Herzog's Nosferatu. On the Cashbox Pop Charts, the number one song was Sad Eyes by Robert John, a song I have 100% never heard of. And usually I say that and then I go listen to it and I'm like, oh, right, this song. Nope. Okay, I feel better because I also do not know that conjures it, nothing for me. Yeah. Never in my life. And I cross referenced it. I know. Also, it. Oh, of course you do. <laughs> uh, I cross referenced it. It was also number one on Billboard just because I was like, what are you, what are you doing, Cashbox? But no, it was a thing. On television, PBS uh, had a special called Musical Comedy Tonight. Sylvia Fine K, wife of Danny K, executive producer, takes you on a Broadway show tour through 50 years of musical comedy hits, starting tonight with Good News, Anything Goes, Oklahoma, and Company. This is delightful, by the way. If you've never seen it, uh, there's at least extensive clips on YouTube, and everyone who likes The Muppet Show should check it out. Yes, agreed. Uh, the cast included, among others, but relevant to our interests, Carol Burnett, Sandy Duncan, Ethel Merman, and Bernadette Peters. And it's like they do full scenes and songs. And and so it's like, you know, did you ever want to see Bernadette Peters play April and Company? Of course you did. Well, now you can. It's great. Or the parts of it I watched are great. The, the entire thing is on YouTube. We will put it in the show notes. At nine o'clock, President Carter addresses the nation. Unclear on what? Maybe the Panama Canal? I don't know. And regular programming will resume following the speech. So for the youngins in the audience, that was a thing. Like you just missed the beginning of a show. The president stopped and the show picked up wherever it was and you never got to watch the beginning again. It still happens, but mostly to boomers. Because <laughs> they my, don't have my mom was and... recently complaining that uh, her soap operas lately have been interrupted by trump indictment situation right. news the pony awards were interrupted for people in the midwest because of some weather event and they were pissed off on social media oh wow they didn't just do a crawl no i it, it was some kind of like like i don't know hurricane warning or I, it, it was not a part of the country where i have loved ones right. so i was not paying out of the part attention. of the country that gets hurricanes but it's fascinating <laughs> i mean there were the two versions there was the one where everything would just start late and then the whole schedule would be off until the news would then go short at 11. That was usually for ball games, right? Like, well, yeah, for like, like, like sports and award shows that ran over, but I feel like it happens sometimes for, for speeches and things, but yeah, otherwise they would just like break in and keep playing. Anyway, on CBS, the white shadow mash, the last resort and Lou Grant. Uh, I mentioned either last time or the time before that uh, we would come back around to the last resort. It was a sitcom about college students working in a hotel kitchen. It lasted 15 episodes and I did not recognize a single name in the cast. So that was the last resort. So it's like high school musical too, kind of. Yes. Yes. But less fun on ABC two, four, zero dash Robert and Monday night football on NBC little house on the prairie. The Ingalls family are shocked and upset when their attempt to gain legal custody of Albert is blocked by the boy's real father. Yes. Followed by the Tonight Show 17th anniversary, which I'm pretty sure was just a clip show. Um, but here's the thing. The newspaper had these really bazonkers illustrated ads for NBC tonight that maybe they're going to last all season, but I have not seen them before, uh, which is how I know that this show, meaning Little House, is dedicated to the International Year of the Child by Michael Landon, because it said that on the terrible illustrated ad. All the other years, children can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> All the other episodes of Little House 2. That's it. <laughs> Just the one. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest stars tonight are masters in the art of mime. 
That's it. <laughs> that's that's all he said. David, who are these clowns? Uh, Shields and Yarnell. Oh, those clowns. <laughs> uh, so, are, is this going to be a silent bio? <laughs> I was, you know, I was miming it, but uh, we aren't releasing the video. <laughs> anyway, uh, Lorene Yarnell was born in 1944 in Inglewood, California. Her older brother is Bruce Yarnell, uh, who might be a familiar name to theater fans among our listeners. He starred in a number of Broadway shows in the 60s, including the Lincoln Center revival of Anna Get Your Gun, opposite the aforementioned Ethel Merman. Uh, Lorene began her career in television and movies in the 1960s. You might spot her dancing on The Cow Burnett Show or in the film of Bye Bye Birdie before winning a scholarship in 1970 to study mime with Marcel Marceau in Paris. Robert Shields was born in 1951 in Los Angeles. As a teenager, he worked as a street mime on Hollywood Boulevard, as you do, uh, where he was discovered Walk by the in same. The streets yes. in mime makeup. It was a normal thing back then. I've seen Godspell. <laughs> He was actually, I think, employed by the Wax Museum to, uh, to freak people customers. out by being a wax figure that moves. Yes. Uh, anyway, it worked because he also was discovered by Marcel Marceau, uh, who also brought him to Paris to study mime. However, this was a year before Lorene got there, and Robert decided that Marcel Marceau's style was not for him, so he left before Lorene got there, and they did not intersect. Uh, he went to San Francisco to resume street miming, and according to the LA Times, he became one of the city's top tourist attractions for his shows in Union Square. Shields and Yarnell's paths finally did cross in 1972, when they both appeared on the Sid and Marty Croft TV special, Falderall. They fell in love, and Lorene moved to San Francisco with Robert. She taught him to dance while he taught her his style of mime. In 1972, they married in a public mimed ceremony in Union Square. Of course they did. Featuring fire eaters, belly dancers, snake charmers, clowns, and mimes. And it attracted such a crowd that the police had to like shut down the area for them. Did a mime officiate their wedding? Like, Yeah, I should yeah. hope so. I just have I just want to point out for those who don't know and I was not there but I've heard that um Michal made the audience at her wedding uh have puppets I mean yes and? which were delightful from the photos but I'm just I'm surprised that you specifically are so anti mime and so horrified by the idea of a mime of a mime officiant at a mime wedding I this have, seems right up your alley I have legal questions is what I have well that's something else that's fair I mean, listen, between the two of them, I think they were married seven times. So, like, and they I, at some point, they knew what they were doing. They had the hang of it by then. Yeah. Uh, I think this was a first marriage for one of them and a second marriage for the other. I did not get all the personal details for the two of them, as I tend to do for other guest stars, because I don't think any of our listeners care. Anyway, in 1975. It's fine. It's fine. The, the officiant was ordained by the Universal Mime Church. <laughs> In 1975, they moved to L.A. to become regulars on the Mac Davis show. Uh, wait, wait, sorry, they were Scientologists. <laughs> <laughs> did they invite anybody to speak now or forever hold their peace? And did anybody object? Or hold that would have been amazing. How would you know? No, if somebody actually spoke and that's the only that would have been so good. <laughs> the rest of the ceremony was so silent. many comic possibilities, none of which were put to good use on the Muppet show. But here we are. Sorry, David, please continue. <laughs> We're going to get through this. We might not. In 1975, they moved to L.A. to become regulars on The Mac Davis Show, a variety show that also featured future Muppet Show guest star Loretta Swit. 
They eventually moved on to the Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour before graduating to their own variety show on CBS in 1977. Their show originated as a summer replacement series, but it did get picked up as a mid-season replacement in 1978. However, it was programmed opposite Laverne and Shirley and did not last very long. Shields and Yarnell divorced in 1986, but they continued to work together off and on until 2009. Among their notable separate credits, uh, Lorene performed the body of Dot Matrix in Spaceballs, and uh, Robert went on to become a painter, sculptor, and jewelry designer. Lorene died of a brain aneurysm in 2010 at the age of 66. Robert's still around, still painting, sculpting, designing jewelry. You can see his work at robertshields.com. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that none of us have Shields and or Yarnell memories, but speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> I have very vivid and traumatic memories of this episode specifically, which is why I was dreading watching this. And here we are. I don't think I'd ever seen it before. I mean, maybe as a little kid, yeah, but certainly not as an adult. And yeah, I was actually a little sad that I looked up Shields and Yarnell before watching because i i thought that it was like a captain and Neil situation and i was like wait oh, they're mimes and i was like freaking I wish, let down i well no but i also like would have loved to have been surprised by the intro of the episode and i would have had the same reaction but still i don't know see and i was expecting like a a couple of like old british men like a like morcom and wise like like a comedy duo i mean like uh-huh. ostensibly they're a comedy duo but their definition of comedy is uh unusual to yeah. say the least they're not a Fry and Laurie. They're a they're a Shields and Yarnell. Yeah, well, I mean, they're a Seymour and Pepe. <laughs> Two of a kind. But just like, what a time that there are multiple famous mimes. <sighs> we have multiple famous makeup putter honors. So, like, let's not throw some stones. I, I'm not. I just it's it's interesting. And and I remember like the Big Apple Circus was sort of. I think just getting started around this time too. And like a couple of those clowns were real famous too, um, including one who was on Sesame street all the time. So it's just a, it's, it was a thing. One of Robert's later careers was training clowns for, I forget if it was for big Apple or for Ringling brothers, but for one of the bigger flashier circuses. Yeah. I mean, he was very talented. I will say uh, I I'm very charmed by uh, Robert Shields's latter day art. Michal and I had a a, a fun time uh, looking at the various things that he has up for sale r- right this moment. S- some of them are quite charming. I may end How up many actually, of them have you bought? <laughs> none yet, but I suspect a non-zero amount in the future because he does nice things with color. He yeah. has has a weird fixation on. Religious symbols and guitars and or robots in tandem. So, yeah, the the religious iconography of more religions than could possibly be his. But <laughs> he's very inspired by them. And yes, he does lovely things with color and movement. And I I might buy a non-zero number of his posters as well. Why don't you get me well, I think we've tipped our hands, but Christy, what did you think of the episode? Well, I told you guys after last week's episode, when it started to flip over to the next episode on Disney Plus, and I saw the names, I said out loud, who are these clowns? And I've never been so upset to be literally <laughs> right in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, this is... I, I'm not going to say... 
that I disliked this more than Mumenshans, but it was definitely not for me in the same way that Mumenshans was not for me. Yeah, yeah, this one, this one was tough. I, I mean, I'll, I'll give it this. The overall quality of the show has improved so much over the last few seasons that this wasn't excruciating, but it wasn't fun. It was tedious. That's what I keep coming back to is like their shtick is tedious and it made everyone else's shtick tedious. And they, they included some of my favorite songs and they made some of my favorite songs tedious. So that's where I I'm landing. I think. David. Well, I can't say that I like this episode. I do think I liked it the best of the four of us. And I'm not entirely sure why, except that maybe you put Muppets on a screen singing songs that I've heard of before. And I'm like a cat with a laser pointer, you know, like that's enough. You know, it's got my attention. Uh, This is not one that I plan to rewatch ever again, but uh, you know, it, it didn't make me want to claw my eyes out the way that other episodes have in the past that I could name. Michal. Yeah, whatever their horrible shtick is, I, I got to hand it to them. They're good at it. Shields and Urinal. They are. And I found it very upsetting. I mean, when we talk about their specific sketches later, I will explain why each of them upset me. I mean, one of them I think should be upsetting to any human being. I mean, yeah, I found them both upsetting for different reasons. And then when they did their you know, song and dance shtick. That was, as Christy said, tedious, but not viscerally horrifying. And when they were hanging out with Gonzo in the dressing room and like pantomiming everything he says, that was, it's, that was cute. That was fine. I had no objection to it the way I objected to the characters and the scenarios that they were playing in their specific repertoire of sketches. So, you know, everything that didn't have them in this episode was fine. There were even some fun bits, but this is near the bottom for me. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty aligned with with Christy, uh, except for the Mamanchant slander. But <laughs> but the thing about Mamanchants, I mean, a they're much weirder, or they're they're weird in a very different way. They're more avant garde. They're more avant garde, and and even though that was a season one episode that was like not great, they I felt like they were more integrated with Muppets, which is you know sort of a hallmark of the point we're at now. Like I was glad to be exposed to them. They're super not for me, but they are really talented. And actually in that third sketch, which was I think the least objectionable, you know, he was he was doing some wild stuff just physically. But they barely interact with the Muppets. And like Christy said, like, why were the Muppets only bits also like terrible and lazy and and ruined one of my favorite songs? Like I just don't it was a, it was a surprisingly bad episode for especially one so early in the season because a lot of it felt very lazy to me and I was like you can't be tired or out of money yet like what's what's happening? Shields and Yarnell, fifteen seconds are curtain shields and Yarnell. <laughs> so Scooter pops in to give Shields and Yarnell the heads up and. Yarnell, I'm just going to call them by their last names and we'll try to remember which one is which. Yeah, I don't even know Yarnell, what their first names are. Yeah. Responds. Laureen and Robert. Laureen Yarnell responds very slowly and mechanically by drawing a tube of lipstick across the entire span of her face and drawing a little bisecting line across her face with lipstick. And Shields also very slowly and mechanically 
glides himself up this wall and then falls over in front of it. So that's what we're in for this episode. I mean, we should say that they are acting like robots. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing the, yeah. a robot act. They're making <laughs> like, robot sounds. Which is the thing they are famous for. And again, they do or it we're well. famous for. Right. Yeah, it's very good, but that doesn't make it entertaining. It's just terrifying. Yeah. I, I think the thing to remember is that no one else did this before them. Like the whole person moves like a robot stick, which is so cliche now. Like, as far as I can tell, Robert Shields invented that. So, like, there was some novelty there that has definitely worn off in the ensuing 40 years. This does feel like Black people stealing or white people stealing something from hip hop culture. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> like, no one had done the robot before. Uh, this is in 1979. Yeah. There was and this is in 1979. Shtick, and this is Shtick from 1972, right? Like, okay. this is, you know, he got his start doing his robot Shtick in the window of a department store in San Francisco where, uh, where he had even like a, a power cord like going running down his leg and into the wall. Oh, wow. And people would come and stand on the street and watch for like long periods of time trying to figure out if he was a person or a robot. Yeah, like it would make more sense if you saw this on the sidewalk or in the subway under Times Square where we have seen stuff like this where people will crowds will gather and put money into a hat or a bag and wonder whether this person is real. But again, and this was this was sense. a new thing when they did it. This wasn't yeah, a thing that you could just like run into in every tourist spot around the world. And this is also I think like there was a fascination in this period in in sci-fi with like robots who are a little off, right? Like, you know, this is C-3PO, this is Cylons, this is um, what's his name from Buck Rogers. Like, you know, there is this sort of thing of like robots, you know, the, the jerky motions or like stuttering or, you know, like they're, they're sort of human, but they're not. What I find so weird about this, and we'll get into this more in the breakfast sketch, like, and this is just like me imposing realism onto something stupid that it shouldn't, but like, you know, why would a robot even try to put on lipstick? Like, I don't... <laughs> I don't understand. Like it just right. Why would robots try eatable cereal? I mean, yeah. Like I just I I have I have problems with suspending my disbelief. <laughs> I follow the world building of this MyMac. I'm just gonna play this <laughs> clip and move on. Boy, Kermit's finally booked guest stars weirder than we are. I mean, I don't think this is the first time we've booked guest stars that are weirder than Muppets. But point taken. Hello, Mom and Shots. Statler and Waldorf almost get themselves out of this. Hey, aren't we in the wrong place? I wish we were, but there's the frog. Oh, well, they're in the right place to have whatever kind of time they're going to have. Gonzo blows his trumpet, and then a fog materializes around him, and he disappears into the fog. Oh, well. And the sound that his trumpet makes sounds less like a trumpet, more like that sound, like when you like slowly let air out of a balloon. <laughs> yeah, I'm up at Joe backstage. Hey, before we go backstage, let's take a little visit into the orchestra pit. Boss, boss, bad news about the guest stars. What is it, Scooter? They're machines. Shields and Yarnell are robots. They are not. They are so. They were just moving like this. <laughs> Scooter, <laughs> oh, watch out for the orchestra pit. Whoa! <laughs> Boy, right into the tuba. Uh, hey, Tiny, would you give a blast on that thing? <laughs> I need the tuba player blast scooter back on frame and up against the curtain. It's a good time. That was my biggest laugh of the entire episode was scooter getting tuba yeeted across the stage. 
tuba yeeted. I, I regret to inform everyone that Tiny the Tuba Player does not, as of this recording, have a Muppet Wiki page, but uh, you can fix that. Moving right along. So uh, backstage this week, we don't witness Shields and Yarnell interacting with Fozzie, but Fozzie just reports to us that they've been teaching him the subtle art of mime. And some of that is actually funny, but all of the funny stuff is visual. But here's a clip anyway. Okay, now here is my biggie. Okay, uh, watch this. <clears throat> oh. uh, bear walking against the wind. <laughs> you weren't even looking. I didn't have to. All mimes do walking against the wind. Fozzie, you got to be more original. <laughs> there was a bit of bear going up an escalator that was probably my biggest laugh of the episode. Might have been Why my only so laugh of the episode. It's because it's it's a <laughs> it's an illusion that isn't even an illusion. He's doing an illusion of not using his legs in order to move. But Fozzie the puppet doesn't have legs. He just moves. <laughs> he moves smoothly. It because, just it made me laugh so much, and yeah, it was the only thing. <laughs> I th- I thought it was perfect. I love bear going up an escalator. I'd watch it all day. At Kermit's invitation, Fozzie attempts to get creative, and he demonstrates his new sketch for Floyd, who is not impressed. Hey, man, I don't know what kind of trip you're on, but I hope you bought a return ticket. (laughs) What does that look like I'm doing? (laughs) It looks like you're feeding spaghetti to an elephant. Yeah, right, right. That's exactly right. How many mimes have you seen doing that, huh? Only one, and he got killed doing it. Well, come to think of it, he wasn't a mime. He was just some guy who tried to feed an elephant spaghetti. They hate Italian food. Yep, and that's that. Well, and Fozzie tries to mime being mauled by an elephant, which is actually distressing to watch for me. During this whole time, Gonzo is watching them from the balcony and just, like, totally unbothered by this. Like, he's considering it. He's not ignoring it, but he's just sort of like... Fozzie being Fozzie. He's just reacting. It's cute. Yeah. And this is the second episode in a row that they've um, sort of pre-transitioned into a dressing room scene by having the Muppet on the balcony outside during the previous scene, like waiting to go in. So I guess that's a thing now. Yeah, it's nice. It's like he's been waiting to go into Shields and Arnell's dressing room, but he also wants to watch this little scene develop. As we mentioned, Gonzo is about to pop into the guest star dressing room because he needs advice for his next act. And Shields helps him out by suggesting through mime a piano recital. That's fantastic. How does he do it? That's exactly my new act. Fantastic. I can see it all now. Gonzo massaging a snake. (laughs) Massaging a snake? Why the fuck are they talking? You had one job. <laughs> they talked in their last sketch. I uh, believe me, I will yell about it. They talked two other times and I will yell about it. <laughs> Both <laughs> times. Great. I was kind of relieved when they talked because I was like, well, you're on the Muppet show. Right. And this is part of my problem with with them with this episode in general. Is like that they didn't they just did their shtick in a vacuum for the most part. And so when they I think was this the first time they spoke chronologically? Or just in so. our chronology? I was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> like you broke the fourth wall. This is great. And I think, you know, when I said that Robert left the Marcel Merceau Academy because he didn't agree with the kind of mind that Merceau did, I think this is actually part of it is that, like, he didn't want to be part of the expression trapped in a box. Uh, where he uh, I see what you did there. 
um, you know, he wanted to be able to sort of like push the boundaries of what counts as mime. I don't think we're going to have a clip of it. So I'll just say it now. He does not sound like somebody from California. I don't know if like his accent is shtick or if it's just happy sounds talk, a lot like but... Steve Whitmire, honestly. A little bit. Yeah. I'm getting a lot of like Jersey slash newsies in it. That's all. I just found it jarring when <laughs> I just hear that as a 70s accent. Yeah, no, that's that's probably accurate. <laughs> 70s isn't a location. Then again, the past <laughs> is another country. Well, it's like it's like old movies. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Fozzie is preparing for his miming debut. Fozzie. Yes, yes. All right, you see, Shields and Yarnell have made a career out of mime. Yeah? They've worked very hard to perfect it, and if you go out there... Oh, yeah, yeah, right. They'll suffer by comparison. I understand. You do not want me to show up your guests. Uh, Tell you what, I'll lay back a little. No, 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 don't do that. You're right. I'll give it my best shot. Kermit, it's a cruel business. Uh, It certainly is. I'll, I'll go introduce you. Okay. So Fozzie's attempt to debut his miming act goes south immediately. Picture, if you will, a bear at a drive-in movie with a porcupine. Hey, what's the name of the movie playing at the drive-in? Uh, I, I don't know. What's the point? You'll find out if you're there with a porcupine. Ah! <laughs> uh, all right, moving right along. As you all know, elephants hate spaghetti. So with that in mind, picture if you will. Wait a minute. Italian elephants don't hate spaghetti. They love it. We're learning a lot about elephants today. <laughs> as excruciating as I found this whole thing, it was nice to have Fozzie back on stage with his little park background with Statler and Waldorf interacting with him. Like, I've missed that. Yeah. It wasn't a good... Sc- I mean, I, I enjoyed his backstage bear going up an escalator stuff. But yeah, we have to... Watch him get thrashed around by an invisible elephant a second time, which is just as difficult to watch. <laughs> and then he mimes Bear crawling off the stage. Poor Fozzie. I want to unpack this a little bit. Why, like normally Muppet violence is fun. Why is like fake Muppet violence? <laughs> like why he is Fozzie throwing He says the elephant is trying to kill me. And yeah. then he acts out getting choked by an elephant. That's different from Muppets being thrown against the curtain. Being blasted out of it. (laughs) Really want to make a gif of Michal's face that she just made. (laughs) And we're recording this, so I can't. (laughs) Um, So, so, so a a Muppet getting like shot out of a cannon and probably, you know, injured and like thrown against a brick wall. is funny to you, but a Muppet acting is is it's funny when there are no setting. repercussions there's like, no repercussions to a fake elephant attacking well, what can i tell <laughs> you I have a lot of feelings. it's not funny when kermit shows up on crutches because he got blasted out of a cannon or fell off a I missed the net i forget why it was that kermit did he fall through the stage floor was that it yeah 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 but it's funny when he gets run over by a steamroller and flattened no, no, that's, that's actually that. horrifying. That's terrible. Yeah, that is the worst to... scene of the Muppet movie. <laughs> trying to establish our boundaries. Yeah. Frozen to death. Not funny. Choked by an elephant. Not funny. Also not sexy. Damn it, David. I mean, <laughs> since there's not actually an elephant there, this is quite literally auto asphyxiation, right? Like, <laughs> no, because he's not actually choking. 
Well, just you don't know that. <laughs> I mean, Fuzzy seems to be getting off on it. So <laughs> I will have things to say about Gonzo later. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for now. <laughs> I don't understand him. Why doesn't he do something clever like walking upstairs or walking against the wind? No way. The bear's got no imagination. <laughs> There's something about the name Laureen Yarnell that sounds like a vocal warm up. Mm-hmm. You know, like Laureen Yarnell, Laureen Yarnell. You know, Laureen you need Laureen Yarnell. <laughs> it's shocking so, that she is not a country singer. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so in spite of this being a mime forward episode, we do have a few pieces of music to talk about. And in fact, the first one. I had a joke and I lost it. (laughs) First one takes some chances. Take a chance on me. Oh, how I wish. Dear listeners, you can see me hall right now. She's busted out her disco light. And very appropriately, as this is a, a song by megastars of disco and beyond. ABBA! Yeah, this so- song is from 1977, so it's fairly new at this point. It was put out on an album called ABBA, the album. And uh, it was a big hit. It went to number three on the Hot 100, uh, number five on Cashbox. And uh, number one on the UK singles chart, it was ABBA's last of nine number one UK singles. And it they were the group with the most number ones in the UK of the entire 70s. Wow. Yeah. As they should be. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the song was written by uh, the bees of ABBA, Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus. And it's a great song. I, I love it. It's uh, it was covered by Erasure, notably in 1992. Their their cover is a good time, and it's also one of the songs in Mamma Mia. And in the movie, it's Julie Walters singing it at Stellan Skarsgård, and it's delightful. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Mamma Mia movie or Mamma Mia on stage, but I, I I prefer the movie, which is controversial. What? What? Yeah, Christy. I I, I love that movie. Uh, I mean, I do too, but but still. it was better on stage with people who could actually sing it. Anyway, I too love, love, love this song. I actually knew the Erasure version before I knew the ABBA version. So I'm not like precious about a particular arrangement, but this arrangement is garbage. <laughs> and sorry, Christy, you have something to say about the arrangement? Yeah, no, I, I'm not a fan of the arrangement, but I'm really not a fan of what they did with it. Right. It looks so bad. It looks bad. It's really lazy. If you haven't watched the episode, this is a bunch of birds just jumping up and down on some telephone wires power lines whatever um that's it that's the entire thing for three and a half minutes they're just jumping and it's that thing you know they're on sticks and the puppeteers are behind them and for some reason instead of doing this on a black background they have like chroma keyed them out against a star field which at least on our modern screens makes the birds transparent so and like they sort of keep falling off the wire and coming back up i was like are they dead are they ghosts like what 
Did just no one notice? Also, is the wire real? I think, I think so, so because it, the wire bounces, and also but, because sometimes you see a puppeteer arm right. obscure a wire. Exactly. See, that's okay. That that would explain it because I was like, the wire goes in and out at certain points. Yeah, I because like, I think they're getting in front of it, and yeah, I just like why not just do it on black so you can do it sort of the the classic way, which looks much better. But also, it was just dull. Like, why is this what you do with these lyrics? I don't understand. I mean, I think there was a clever idea at trying to get the sound of of like the boing boing of the wires into the arrangement Mm -hmm. but they didn't quite nail it (laughs) yeah it's just it's it's the exact same thing for so long like there's no story in it and yeah and if it's if you're gonna do that then do a mayhem number because i don't need these birds and especially because like the original version of the song is like all about having a great arrangement so yeah to, to to take that away and not replace it with something interesting yeah. really like, does damage to the song. The erasure version is also a right. great arrangement and pretty different. And, you know, so it's the, the song can withstand a lot of things. And you can withstand Mommy, uh, Julie Walters singing it at somebody, uh, which is great. Don't get me wrong. You can do a lot with the song. And the song, like most ABBA songs, tells a story. So why didn't they? I just don't get it. Yeah, this arrangement sounds very much like 70s game show thinking music. Or like <laughs> yes. jug band goes electric. Well, and the vocals too, because they're all doing like bird voices, which it's just not how I want to hear that song song. <laughs> I enjoyed it, but also this episode has been steered into my brain because this is one of the episodes we had on VHS. So I'm I've heard the ABBA version, but this is the one I have a memory of. So it doesn't oh, it doesn't feel wrong to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you call a wire act. On this show, everything's a wire act. No? Sure. You keep asking, why are they doing that? Oh. Hey, Kermit, hmm? do we get paid extra for working on the high wire? Yeah. Uh, no. Cheat, cheat. That's like my second laugh of the episode. In our UK spot, we get some monkey business. I've been around the world Had my pick of every girl You'd think I'd be happy But I'm not Everybody knows my name But it's just a crazy game Oh it's lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top, especially if you're King Kong or a King Kong adjacent. Pongo. Yeah. Pongo the wild man gorilla. That's the chap. He's very cute. He is. There, very I said cute. something positive about this number. <laughs> hey. And he happens to be at the top of the Empire State Building. For now. For now. So this is a song called It's Only at the Top. It's a Randy Newman song. Adam is thrilled. I mean, I didn't know that <laughs> while I was watching. I just was like, why do I hate this so much? And now I know. It wasn't the chipmunk voices of all the little people inside the windows of the Empire State Building. I find that very weird. But no, that wasn't the problem. Okay. 
So yeah, Randy Newman recorded this himself. He put out a live version first on Randy Newman Live in 1971 and then put out a studio version on an album called Sail Away in 1972. But I discovered an exciting bit of backstory for this song that is incredibly relevant to our interests slash the Muppeturgy drinking game. Oh. Here's a clip from 2008 from uh, the BBC's Desert Island Discs. Did you take one of your songs to Frank Sinatra? It's yeah, lonely at literally. the top. He did. Me and Lenny went to see him. I took. I wrote it for him. I thought it'd be funny if he did a song like "Lonely at the Top," which is someone whining about, "Oh, even though I'm famous and I have everything, I it's lonely." And I thought it'd be kind of hip if he did something like that, but he didn't. But he, he did. You meet face. He was face like with pretending him? to read music, and he was. Uh, playing uh, Think It's Gonna Rain and talking about minor key and things like that. It was funny to see that kind of insecurity. I mean, maybe it was lonely at the time. <laughs> Today I learned Randy Newman's speaking voice is even more annoying than Randy Newman's singing voice. <laughs> Got it. So yeah, the song was written for noted Joe Raposo Stan Frank Sinatra, who turned it down. Well, somebody just got bingo, I'm sure. <laughs> It's funny. I know this song from You've Got Mail. Uh, there's a, a sequence in You've Got Mail set to the the studio version of it. Also, the sketch reminded me. So I used to work in uh, a skyscraper uh, on the 36th floor on 42nd Street in Manhattan that had a clear view of the Empire State Building. And frequently on my breaks, I'd be looking out the window and I would think, you know, if King Kong were happening right now, I'd see it. <laughs> You'd be the first to know. Yeah. Do any of you remember that I just thought of this? Uh, the inflatable King Kong? No. That no. Maybe it was to promote the remake, but I feel like it was later than that. So I don't know what it was promoting. Did but, you dream I mean, there's a remake every 20 minutes, so it could Sure. Been no, but this would have been like before the, the what's his name? Hobbit guy remake. And... Peter Jackson. Thank you. And after the um, after the 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 Twin Towers, late seventies, late seventies one. But yeah, they're promoting something, and they made like a, a like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade sized King Kong and put it on the side of the Empire State Building. I do not remember that. I will. I will look for this for the show notes, or we can cut it if I if it turns out I am a lunatic, but. <laughs> However, for one summer, I worked at Universal Studios California underneath the King Kong on CityWalk. So I do feel a little kinship to him. A little King Kong ship. This is not my favorite Randy Newman song. And I don't think this performance does it any favors. But I liked that all the little people inside the building were like our old friends from Muppet Show's past. So like there's like a tiny little Mildred and a tiny little Zelda and some folks from the orchestra. and Like that, that tickled me. And the chipmunk voices. Well, because of a scale. I just understand why. I, sure. I guess. Cause you know, you're, you're hearing it as Quango would hear them. Sure. Sure. Right. I understand the motivation to do it and I'm not opposed to it. It, it was just a little jarring. The inflatable King Kong was in 1983 for the, um, 50th anniversary of the original film. Okay, well, that's I, why we don't remember it. <laughs> You're I only mean, a couple years younger than me, David. So. Yeah, but I wasn't coming to New York in 1983. And I was born in 83, but I don't know if I would have been aware 
of this stunt event happening in the year of my birth. We are all aware of things that happened before we were born. We are currently recording a Muppet Show podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure you will include some nice pictures of this in the show notes. Yes, I found a good article. So. And and for if there are listeners who are like, they're talking about Randy Newman, like he's someone we should know. And I have no idea who that is. You can go back and listen to our James Kogo episode because we talked about him uh, for the song Short People, which is also a Randy Newman song. True. He also wrote the songs for the Toy Story movies. And there's a very funny, I can't believe, every once in a while, I will admit that Family Guy has funny bits. And they did a very funny Randy Newman bit in one of their very early episodes that takes place in a post-apocalyptic world and uh as they're like walking to find shelter there's like a randy newman soundtrack song uh because every randy newman soundtrack song sounds the same and sounds actually just like this song and then they like encounter him like sitting on a porch with an upright piano playing it i will find a clip i will put that in the show notes yeah randy newman of course also one of the main songwriters on cop rock very important <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Shut it down. Oh, just because of the end or the whole thing. I mean, I I don't like any of it, but I really don't like the end of it. How would you describe what's happening? It's the Snurfs. We've seen the Snurfs before. Yeah, yeah. They're snurfs doing their Snurf thing, hopping up and down. Yeah, yeah. But like, everything. This is a very lazy sketch. Yeah. When I say this episode is lazy, this sketch is also thirty-five seconds long. I fully believe that the episode was running short and this is what happened. But like, and like this, this is clearly like they needed at least one more take. Like they're, they are just like fucking up on screen. And and how can you tell you put that in our Slack? And then I watched it again. And I was like, I don't understand what he's talking about because because they're not, they're not moving on the note. Like they, one of them like, like misses the cue. There's also like, if you're if you buy into the conceit that like each one represents a different note, they don't like when they return to a note. It's like the wrong one does it. Like oh. I mean, so does the muppaphone. Yeah, I didn't actually get. Yeah, that but this this is a little more specific than the muppaphone is. That's I suppose. Do you, are we supposed to believe that they are producing these sounds like they're condensing themselves I like an accordion bellows? I didn't think so. I wasn't but sure. It's plausible now that you say it. I mean, so the, the, the puppeteering much. is even lazier. Right, and they definitely need another take. It's so low energy. Like, I just zoned out every time. <sighs> okay. Tell us about the song. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about the song. The song is called Little Brown Jug. It was written in 1869. Shout out to the public domain uh, by a guy named Joseph Eastburn Winter, who I learned a few interesting things about uh he was a relative of nathaniel hawthorne uh how he was related i'm not quite sure adultery yeah (laughs) 
And uh, he had a brother named Septimus Winner. Love a Septimus. Love a Septimus. Love a Septimus Winner. Yeah. A champion among names. Yeah. He, he, he won it being the seventh child. Good for him. Oh. <laughs> I guess when there's nothing left, you win the, the seventh child cool name award. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, you know what? I actually looked it up because I was like, is every Septimus the seventh child? And this guy definitely was. So Septimus Winner was also a songwriter and his songs uh, are songs that we still know some of them. Um, he wrote the words to a song called Der Deitcher's Dog. Uh, the first verse of which uh, became famous. It was, oh, oh, where, oh, where has my little dog gone? How does that go? <laughs> oh, where, oh, where has my little dog gone? Were you hoping for it in German? Well, it's not clear if the song is written in German because even though it starts with dare, it ends in dog, and dog is not a German word. Yeah, as no, we've learned early in our run, there the the Fuller song has some sort of like ethnic stereotype, ethnic joke thing happening, but but the the first you know non problematic piece is the thing that has survived, thankfully. And he also wrote Ten Little Indians," very problematic, and. Also, uh, Septimus Winter was briefly jailed for treason during the Civil War for writing a song demanding the reinstatement of a general that Lincoln fired. <laughs> so, yeah. Huh. Poor Joseph, though. Poor we're here Joseph. to talk about his song, and we only know <laughs> about his brother. Yeah, we're here writing a whole musical about Septimus Winter. Yeah. You could say that Joseph was the loser of the winners. <laughs> Oh man, um, he he was east burning down. So, Little Brown Jug had a resurgence in the late '30s, early '40s because Glenn Miller and his orchestra had a hit version of it. That's why it it persists. And then I feel like in the '80s, it's one of those songs that like everyone learned on the recorder in elementary school. Never heard it before in my life. My only association with this song is the title. That there was a a play on the title in an Asterix comic. Mm. Where they they had some drunk characters sing "Little Brown Cask," and that's what I always thought was the name of whatever song he was singing until today. So the reason that I I hate this so much is that it ends on the opposite of a Picardy third. And I asked all of my friends with composition backgrounds. I, I mean, asked not, not all of well. them. I have a, a a lot of them, but I asked a handful of friends with composition backgrounds if there was a a name for the opposite of a Picardy Third. A Picardy Third, I, I should say, is uh, when a minor song ends unexpectedly on a major chord. And a Picardy Third is fun. This, yes. however, is just trolling. Yes. There's not a name for it. They're like, no, that's not a, that's not a thing. And, and for good reason, because it's terrible. Well, yeah. But it wasn't even just like, was that even like a, a real chord? Like that just, it sounded like, quote unquote comedy noise right like when you just like slam your hands down on the keyboard which happened to be in a minor key but like you know it wasn't like like there are minor chords that sound lovely and then I, they do resolve it with yeah, the other chords like yeah, yeah. Oh, no this isn't slander of no no i mean minor it, it, chords it's just <laughs> no i know i, I just like <laughs> and you know like it, if this had been a sketch like that could have been a punch a musical punchline but nothing happened and it was 30 seconds long i don't get it 
<sighs> Let's clear out the nonsense with some great comedy shtick. And I'm putting great in heavy air quotes. And also comedy in air quotes, but shtick can remain. Make a laugh, make a laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? My dad says, be an actor, my son. But be a comical one. Make him laugh. Hey. Oh, this was so disappointing. Oh, there are so many things they could have done with the song that was not this. Ugh. It's worth noting while Christy recovers that this is a showcase for Shields and Yarnell who are lip syncing these vocals, but I am 100% positive never went anywhere near a microphone to actually sing them. These are all Muppet voices. That's not what they're here to do. They're I know. Mimes. But but they do fake it. And I was like, you're not in this mix at all. And like, she at least can sing. Like, she had a whole yeah. musical theater career. I did enjoy her dance break in this number. I did too. I actually, I I mean, this is my favorite of the Shilton Yarnell bits, which is a low, low bar. But mm-hmm. um, Christy, why don't you tell us about the song before we get off track again? Sure. Uh, so Make Them Laugh is a song from the perfect piece of cinema called Singing in the Rain. It was written by Arthur Freed, who wrote the lyrics, and the music was by Nacio O'Hare Brown. Arthur Freed, uh, we've talked about before, he was a real creep. I'm not going to go into any detail. He just was a real creep, and I just take every opportunity I can to say that. Singing in the Rain is, by and large, an early example of a jukebox musical. Um, it was built by uh, Comden and Green as screenwriters around the songbook of Arthur Freed and Nacio O'Hare Brown. But they called upon Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown to add some material once they got started. And this song was actually added to the movie after Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who wrote the screenplay, started writing. They were building a, a moment around a f- comedy song, an existing comedy song of theirs, and it wasn't quite working. So they went to them and they were like, you know, what What if you wrote something kind of like the song Be a Clown, Cole Porter's song Be a Clown in the movie The Pirate? And they went back and they basically like Xeroxed it and called it a day. It's shocking and egregious. Like, it's barely changed. I think this is better. I actually prefer this to Be a Clown melodically. Like, I think they like made some tweaks that are a, a little cleaner. But yeah, Cole Porter could have sued their pants off. And supposedly the reason he didn't is because Arthur Freed, who uh, was a producer at this point, a movie producer, had given Cole Porter the job writing the songs for the pirate at a point that he like needed the work. So he was like, eh, whatever. I owe you one. So I owe yeah. you one song. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, the, the AFI apparently agrees with me, uh, as it's number 49 on the 100 years, 100 songs list. And yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it, it's fine. It's if, if we have to sit through the shield and yarn stick, it's fine. She's a very good dancer. Yeah. It really made me wish that she had tap danced for this whole episode instead of doing their mime shtick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, her dancing is great and he does um he does a, a gorilla impression, which whatever, but 
but he there's a bit where he like the he as the gorilla like has his hands on the bars and is like like pulling as if he's like pulling himself by the bars and to jump side to side and it's remarkable like you know just like sort of the the control to do that where his hands are not moving and his lower body is moving like quite a great deal and jumping across the floor like it's just really physically impressive and it's actually i thought a really great illusion in service of nothing right like this still is not i don't really get why you would learn to do this but he's really fucking good at it and i like i watched it a couple of times because it 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 does it does break your brain a little bit i guess that's why you do it like right because that's the point it was the only time in the episode when i really felt anything for him as a performer but like <laughs> I, there are other sketches later that like the or actually earlier in the episode that we'll talk about in a minute like where the skill is is as evident but like it didn't it did nothing for me this this one bit was the one that i was like okay I see you, Robert Shields. And then Gonzo asks him to impersonate a chicken. But is that what he does? Well, he impersonates a chicken handler. Okay. So he he does this thing where he like flaps his hands as though they're the wings of a chicken that he is holding. Right. And and sort of like struggles with it. And the chicken pecks him in the face. And then he brings it over to Gonzo. And magically, this invisible chicken materializes as a Muppet chicken. Got it. Yeah, it's somewhere between a ventriloquism puppet act and a magic trick. Right. It's like it's like Fozzie being attacked by the elephant, only he's being attacked by a chicken. But right. it's just really inconsistent with the rest of what he's doing in the sketch, so it kind of lost me. I mean, Gonzo doesn't mind. Correct. Thanks for showing me that chicken trick. It really works. And it- Come on, girls! What? <laughs> hey, Gonzo, it looks like you've really been busy. <laughs> well, my coop runneth over. Yeah, he's just been conjuring up a whole chicken harem. And Kermit makes his smushy face at my coop runneth over, and I, I don't know if it's for the pun or because Gonzo has crossed a line into being too much of a creep, but it was great. <laughs> yeah. Also, Shields and Yarnell are wearing these outfits that are so deeply 70s clown culture. Yep. Like there's somewhere between like like I I kept like alternately like bouncing from like Pippin to today's special. Like, yes. It's like, huh? it's like <laughs> the hats and the suspenders and also That's just a- like skin tight scoop neck chest hair like for him. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ladies' leotards don't come with chest hair these days. Too bad. That's no. extra. It's all very yeah. non-equity company of Godspell. <laughs> yeah, what happened to men in scoop neck shirts? They're all on Fire Island. We should note that, I guess we didn't even mention, the setting for this is a circus, and they're in the ring, and so around the ring watching this are many Muppets, including Hilda, hey. Hilda's back, and Fred the Lizard from Emma Daughter's Japan Christmas, who is really an amazing-looking puppet. Yeah, it's really impressive, just like the the scaliness of his skin. Yeah, like there's there's a lot going on in Emanardo's Japan Christmas. He's never stood out to me, but his his little moment in this is great. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey, what? And get out of show business. <sighs> okay, kids. You thought we could avoid talking about the Shields and Yarnell sketches, but we have to. Here they are doing one of their classic sketches: robots having breakfast. Ladies and gentlemen, Shields and Yarnell. 
Yup. Uh, Shields and Yarnell play their characters, Mr. and Mrs. Clinker. They are robots. They don't move smoothly like humans. They walk around in a clunky way. They attempt to pour milk over their cereal because that's what robots do or orange juice into their mouths, which is bound to fail and make a horrible mess and tragedy ensues. And they eventually fall into their cereal bowls and the table collapses and it takes them with it. And all of the mess and just like pouring milk all over the table and orange juice all over themselves and their faces into their cereal. I just, this upset me as a child on such a deep and visceral level. (laughs) Because it's wasteful or... Because it just, the, the liquid everywhere and the orange juice down your shirt, it just feels so, I can feel the squishy discomfort. Icky. Yeah. The smell of the milk. Also, someone has to clean that up. Like, I know the Blue Man Group does this eight times a week, but it, it's just, it's just. <laughs> okay, gross. page manager. It pushes the same buttons for me as the scene in the movie version of Tommy when Anne Margaret is oh, like rolling around in the baked beans. Like, is that what you said about Mississippi mud when we? Yes, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all all of a piece in that piece. God, is none of you terrible. watch Double Dare? Like, it's different though. That's I, different because, like, that was always like. I did not enjoy watching cleaner either substances. Double Dare was all food. There was also slime, but but yes, even though I have no memory of ever seen this episode before i can hear my mother saying they are wasting so much food (laughs) this sort of thing really bothers her (laughs) and unlike some of her grammar peeves it has not quite infected me but i definitely think of her every time yeah no i i don't like the idea of wasting food but just in a in a sensory way the aiming for your face and pouring orange juice on your shirt and milk all over the table <sighs> and just like, why do these robots live together in a suburban home without any humans? They're married. Why, why are they, they trying, trying to eat breakfast? breakfast? Because that's how you start a balanced day. <laughs> it's a balanced start to your day. It's. I, just... I mean, are they robot invaders who have infiltrated their little suburb and are trying to look human? That's the only reason I can think of. God, it just it felt like I don't know, like Eugenie and Nasco's Carousel of Progress, like. <laughs> 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 I, I did love the very, very spot on 70s-ness of the kitchen. Like the Yeah. It is not the same wallpaper that we have. My I grew up in a house that was built in 1969. Uh and nice. it was not the same wallpaper, but it was the same colors and the same feelings <laughs> of my kitchen. And like not just the wallpaper, but also all of their like like their pots and pans and teapot all had this like like orange and brown and avocado sort of color scheme to it. It was just so exactly that moment. <laughs> I was too horrified to notice the set. So thank you. I do have a, one more question before we move on. Uh, what What is up with his makeup slash skin tone? He is a, a what we call a white man. Yes, but in this <laughs> sketch, he appears to be in some sort of blackface. I did not. You mean in like Gomez Adams style? I kind of. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's like a color correction thing on the show, but it's only in the sketch. He really seems to have something on that darkens his skin. I, I did not notice that. Just like too much foundation. I don't think that he's trying to not look like. I a can't white imagine man. that he is, but I just found it so strange because she is not. Like she is. She is the same. 
the same skin color throughout the entire episode. I mean, he's very heavily made up and they drew a mustache on top of that and they gave him a pipe and slicked his hair back. Like they're going for a look and I'm not sure what. The- I mean, I, I think, I think there is some kind of foundation that's supposed to make him look more plastic. I think that's what it is, but she doesn't really have that. So, right. So it's, it's more prominent that he has. Yeah. That he has that. She has like yeah. eyeliner, but it's, it's not the same. Don't know what to tell you. Is that their act? Yep. Well, how come they don't talk? Because it's mime. I thought you said it was theirs. Uh, anyway, in this next sketch, they do talk. Shields and Arnell play cowboy characters who play imaginary cards and shoot imaginary guns. And that doesn't stop them from both somehow killing each other by the end of the sketch. She shoots herself in the face. This was upsetting to me. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh... It was shocking to me that, that that moment alone did not get some kind of a trigger warning here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> but really, like, it's 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 an accident in the context of the sketch. And obviously, as we've discussed earlier, it is mime and they are fine. But I, it just, it's just, it's such a violent image. Yeah. With an actual gun. Or a fake gun, a finger gun. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to like, like it's an Foz- actual make-believe invisible <laughs> finger gun. But like the Fozzie elephant thing is so is so ridiculous. Yeah, Bo believes it. Versus this, which is like just someone shooting herself in the face, and I found it very upsetting. It is upsetting. It's upsetting that she shoots him and manages to actually, by all appearances, kill him and then herself, and then there are two cadavers on the set at the end of the sketch. But you know what's more upsetting? They fucking talk in this sketch. <laughs> I, had a much, I had a much bigger problem with the sound effects, but let's let's play the clip and then we can talk about that. Okay. <laughs> What's the matter? Never seen anyone shovel cars before? Before, yes. Now, no. <laughs> so you're supposed to believe that they're dealing cards and shuffling cards and I I think this kind of sound design makes sense for whatever kind of over-the-top shtick they're doing. If they were mimes and they were being silent, it would make sense that there would be no sound effects. But I think this is helpful for whatever they're trying to do. Adam disagrees. I think it's cheating. I also, I mean, do you, David, do you know from, from your research if that this is a thing that they did all the time? Like, did they normally have, I guess, fully work? Did other episodes? Uh, you know, I, it did not occur to me to go watch any of their other performances because <laughs> I love myself. <laughs> it's just, there's just something about it. It's it's so pronounced and over the top, and like, which so are they, I guess. So it it, it makes sense, but it there's something like so f- fake about it. It doesn't seem to match. Right, they're, what they're doing is like a very classical type of clowning, and then there's this weird, and this might just be the mix. But like the sound effects were so present and so fakey fake. And I don't think you need them actually. I think that they sell what they're doing, whether you like it or not, really well. And and that that clip wasn't a great example of it. There, there, there's robot sounds in the robot sketch, and there's like just a ton of stuff in this one. And I just found all of it like morning radio DJ annoying. I <laughs> quickly looked up one of their performances from the Sunny and Share Comedy Hour and there's music, but there is not all of the sound effecty things. Yeah, I think that's better. But would it have felt not- less like cheating if they were comic mimes who made the sounds themselves? 
Yes. I don't think I would like it, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Get the guy from Police Academy in there to. Yeah. Or the guy from Premium Companion. I mean, and that's actually like if they were doing some sort of improv and like part of like someone in the troupe also were like sound effect guy and had to like keep up with what they were doing. Right. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. I or still... if they had a guy with a box of Foley props. Or that, yeah, I still wouldn't like it, but like if right, that would be a a, a challenge. Yeah. Um, I, everything about this is so off-putting. She has these like weird fake teeth, and and she's also got all this like dirt makeup on her that like uh, again, I don't think it's supposed to look like anything other than dirt. But when she came on screen, I did have the moment of like, is she in blackface? Like, right, I think it's supposed to look like a beard because she's playing a man. But I oh, I, I think you're right that it oh. does look like dirt, but I think it's supposed to look like a. I, this was another bit of this episode that upset me enough as a child that as soon as she came on, I was like, oh, no, nothing. <laughs> yeah, when you're sympathizing with Bo, you know that it's a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good segue. I'm finally reading Of Muppets and Men, which I've been promising to do since we started this podcast. Uh, and there's a nice little bit about Bo. I'll just read it. It's a little long, but that's okay. Dave Goals feels that of all his characters, Beauregard, the stagehand, is the one he knows best, yet he has never evolved into a major figure. Bo is very similar to a character I performed in Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. His name was Wendell Porcupine, and I had a lot of fun with him. Bo was sort of modeled after him. He's big and strong and clumsy. I love him, but he's passive. We've never found a hook for him. If you take Gonzo, on the other hand, he has an obvious hook. Everything he does is inappropriate. That gives the writers plenty of active choices, and that leads to comedy. Dave Odell, one of the writers, suggested to Goals that the problem with Beauregard is that he has no desires. He doesn't want anything. Jerry Jewell concurs with this, adding, he's such a wonderful puppet and such a wonderful character. I still feel that we could do something with him. It may just be that he doesn't work within the context of the Muppet Theater. Perhaps if we could get him into another situation, we could find something for him to desire. I don't know that they ever achieved that goal, but I thought that was all very sweet and it made me appreciate Bo a little better. Yeah, it is very sweet. I don't think we need a Bo spinoff series, but... It's nice to hear some deep thought put into his character. Also, everybody loves Wendell Porcupine, so that makes sense. And it is a great puppet. Like, having him in this sketch to react to them is maybe the best use of him we've seen so far. Just when you think this show is terrible, something wonderful happens. What? It ends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks when we'll go to the dogs for the Diane Cannon episode. You can find us on social media as Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I had a thought. It went away. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter.